Hello and welcome to The Two View, the cutting-edge educational and interactive show for PAs and nurse practitioners in emergency medicine and urgent care. My name is PA Michael Sharma, and I practice emergency medicine and urgent care in Dallas, Texas. Hi, and I'm Martha Roberts, emergency medicine NP and assistant professor in Northern California. Speaking of teaching, Martha, I wanted to thank you for your guidance. You know this about me, but I haven't really talked about it on the podcast. I was really proud to accept a faculty position this fall at the PA program at Mercy College of Ohio. In between working shifts and working on the podcast, I've been teaching EKG interpretation and even doing some admissions interviews. Uh, This is my first official academic gig. Uh, Everyone there at Mercy College of Ohio has been very welcoming to me. So thank you, Mercy College of Ohio, and to my students, in case you're wondering. Nothing on this episode will be on the next exam. <laughs> you know, they always ask that question. They are. I'm really, <laughs> I'm really I, re- ha- I remember those days. Like, you know, like you're always wondering, like, was that important? Yeah. Yeah. Was that important? Uh, well, I'm happy that you took on that role, Mike, because, you know, I always like to make this joke that it took like three years to get you fully vetted for CCME. I mean, we teach to thousands, but our group is very small. Uh, and that is the office in which we are. And when I met you, I was so happy to get you. And we had so many ideas together early on. And it's just great to see you expanding that out. I think the best thing that I like about teaching is that it keeps me current. So if there is someone out there listening that's inspired to go in and teach, definitely go and do it. Pass it on. Um, you know, we all want you to be leaders in your field and it's worth the time and energy. I promise. Well said, Professor Roberts. Well, thank you, Professor Sharma. Listener, we've got some exciting news for you. This is our 21st episode of The Two of You. I know it feels like- We're old enough to drink now. (laughs) Yes, we are definitely the legal age to develop a maladaptive response to the stresses of emergency medicine using alcohol for sure. Okay, so thanks for being there through us as we said our first words, took our first few steps, headed off to school. Thank you for all the support and feedback you've gotten over these past two years. And thank you for that time I was- stuck in a fetal position and then you nursed me back to health. Um, Yes. With our show growing up, it's time to announce a little formal change. We are still going to be cutting edge, interactive and educational. Um, The show that you know and love, but now we're going to do it with some snappier, little snappier uh, segment titles, bringing you some more information you need to know before your next shift. So let's dive right in. You'll see what we mean. As always, our show notes containing the links to everything we talk about on here will be on our website, the number two, so two, the word view, two view dot fireside dot FM. That's two view dot fireside dot FM. We also plan to keep ramping up the proceduralist website to post some great videos and interviews with case studies for you to follow anytime, anywhere, keeping them evergreen. Well, let's go right into our first segment. We're going to call Wet Read, uh, keeping in the radiology uh, slang here. We're going to take 60 seconds each to share something new or noteworthy and our hot takes on it. Martha, you're on the clock. Oh, my gosh. Wait, hold on. I wasn't ready for this. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, shoot. That was like five seconds already. Shoot. Okay. So are you still tearing open a pack of sterile gloves for your emergency department or urgent care wound? repair. There's a study out there in the Netherlands that suggests the humble box gloves in every room in your ED or clinic are non-inferior to sterile gloves in this setting. So your run-of-the-mill 
you know, boring clean gloves from the wall versus that beautiful sterile package. Um, this is a multi-center single uh, blind randomized controlled trial that enrolled almost 1500 patients. It tested for non-inferiority of sterile gloves and dressings versus sterile gloves, dressings, and drapes for suturing of traumatic wounds. The observed wound infection rate in the non-sterile group was 6% versus 7% in the sterile group with overlapping confidence interval. All right. Well, yeah, we covered droperidol, an old drug with multiple uses that's coming back into wider use and is new to the youngsters out there back on episode two. In my efforts to get hashtag droperidonisons trending and how there seem to be new supply issues every month with, you know, how a paradol, lorazepam, not immune to these shortages, I present a systematic review of droperidol in kids for agitation. Um, the ages of almost 200 patients in this review ranged from 21 years old all the way down to seven. Overall, the study showed time of sedation of approximately 10 to 20 minutes and duration of sedation around one hour. Most patients were able to return to normal activities by two hours. A majority of patients achieved adequate sedation from a single dose. The two most adverse effect, uh, commas adverse Effects were hypotension, about 5%, and dystonic reaction, about 2.5%. Both of those were adequately managed when needed with IV fluids and anticholinergics, respectively. Keep it in mind if your shop has access to this medication and your old favorite is out of stock, or if you're open to a possible new favorite. Hashtag droperidonosons. Hashtag new favorites, all right? <laughs> new old favorites. Right, there you go. <laughs> all right, so let's move on to segment two our dry scan. All right. So our next segment is dry scan, where we go a little deeper into a topic or two. Let's talk about COVID for a few minutes, specifically how we in medicine are treating COVID, or as this study suggests, we're not treating COVID. I keep hearing about how 400 people are still dying of COVID each day in the United States and how that number has been holding steady, regardless of summer travel or schools opening again for fall of 22. Since April of 2022, for six months, that Forja number is holding pretty steady. I know there is controversy out there about how these numbers may be uh, tabulated. Are these deaths from other things like trauma or surgical complications with incidental diagnoses of COVID, or are these deaths because of COVID directly or some sort of direct sequela, let's say, uh, you know, uh, respiratory failure or dehydration or whatever else. There is no way for us to figure that out today, but hopefully we can agree that if there is a way that any deaths directly because of COVID could be prevented with antivirals and those deaths aren't prevented, that's kind of a bummer. Mm. Yeah. There's a really stunning visual from a survey published in the September 2022 uh, in clinical infectious diseases by Ko Kojima and Klossner. Please do head to our show notes at toview.fireside.fm to take a look at that. We're also going to pop this graph on the screen of our video version of the podcast, hopefully. If you can find that on YouTube by searching for the Center for Medical Education. So basically, they looked between March 2021 and August 2022. These are the days of monoclonal antibodies. And then in 2022, different oral antivirals, as well as outpatient remdesivir. The survey 
they surveyed almost 45,000 patients aged 18 and up who had lab confirmed COVID-19 and asked them about their awareness and treatments with COVID antivirals. I'm just going to focus on the segment of the survey population that is most likely to benefit from COVID antivirals. That's the 65 years and up group. 66% of this group were even aware there were antiviral treatments available. Of the entire group, 65 years and up who had COVID, only 36% of that 100% group tried to get an antiviral treatment. In the end, the percentage of the total group that was able to access an antiviral, it's not 30, it's not 20, it's not even 5%, 1.7%. Less than 2% of this group that is the highest risk of COVID mortality was able to access an antiviral. This is staggering to me, and maybe this is why potentially four to people a day are still dying of COVID. So, Mike, are you able to bring up that graphic so that we can share that with our people on the YouTube and and while um, I was looking for it myself? But. Uh, yeah, I will. I think what we'll do is, as they say, we'll do it in post. I think <laughs> our team can put it in over our, our, our video there. and People can look at it um, uh, uh, later on. All right. Great. Sorry. I was, I was being too needy. All right. So we bring up this study, not to blame you who are listening, uh, but to share some awareness. I mean, Mike, there are, there were no classes on COVID-19 when we went to school. So same goes for most of the practicing clinicians out there. We have really been pushed to practice medicine and nursing to the fullest extent of our training during this pandemic, adapting to a number of changes, learning about new vaccines and medications, and maybe pondering on am I going to be liable if I prescribe a COVID antiviral to someone and have a negative side effect? I think it's fair to consider. I also, there are some other issues at play. Uh, there's cost always. There's a cost to doing a treatment, insurance authorizations and pre-authorizations, access to an infusion clinic. Like even in relatively larger cities, it can be really difficult to get some of these IV treatments like monoclonal antibodies or remdesivir. However, I think there are liability issues to play if you consider, you know, you have a patient in front of you with an illness, there is a concept of duty to treat. Uh, and if you can prescribe even oral Paxlovid or even Molnupiravir and you don't, are there liability issues if you fail to treat that patient, especially if they are 65 years and up? I think there are. Uh, like you said, this wasn't covered in our formal schooling. We're having to pick it up along the way. But if we haven't yet done that, I really think it's important that we do. Uh, in the show notes, we're going to put a lot of links on ways to safely prescribe the COVID antivirals. You know, especially in the 65 years and up population, there's good evidence, in my opinion, of benefit in preventing severe disease, even for people who have been vaccinated or infected before. I also want to highlight one of my favorite podcasts. It's called The Clinical Update from This Week in Virology, or TWIV. Between the resources we have in the show notes and some guidance that is given every, literally every podcast that has a clinical update from TWIV, I think it's definitely within our grasp to safely treat our patients with COVID antivirals. Today is the last day of PA week, so happy PA week to all those who observe, but this is what our profession's PA and P were designed to do is to, especially in emergency medicine and urgent care, to bridge access to care gaps and to provide care people are not getting care. If you have not pulled the Band-Aid off and uh, we're not yet 
wading into this area of practice that is new to all of us, please reach out to us if you want some assistance. We're very happy to be a resource and discuss things more in depth offline. Yeah, you know, I have preached this for a very, very long time. You know, we say things like, yes, of course, operate at the highest level of your license, um, do the best job that you possibly can, get that extra education. Don't uh, be told that, you know, you're scope creeping because you want to master the art of ultrasound guided IV. Because by the way, nurses, our bedside nurses do that and they're so good at it. And think about how much that bridges the gap between those patients waiting in the waiting room, those patients waiting to get admitted, you taking on a code and helping out with anything. Your nurse spends that 15 minutes in a room putting an ultrasound guided line. I mean, Back in the day, it's like ultrasounds only meant for doctors, only meant for doctors. But now we're using it to save doctors time. Um, and, and again, I'm not trying to go on a, a tirade here about the um, complaints people have about PAs and NPs, but properly trained PAs and NPs bridging gaps and making uh, great strides in healthcare to help our patient is a good thing. Now, uh, poorly trained uh, dummies, okay? I mean, they exist in every career and profession, yet those aren't helping us, right? So all I can say, Mike, is I know you're looking at me like, all right, don't, let's, let's, let's not move forward with this topic because <laughs> I'm just saying that it's okay to be the bridge um, in the gaps. That was what our role was created for. And, and ultimately, we're not saving doctor's time we're saving patients time. That's, right. that's the goal. We are all in service of the patient here. And if the nurse can be more of service by learning additional skills, why shouldn't they do that say, if they can do it safely? If the PA or the NPA can be more of service to the patient by learning additional skills, why shouldn't they? Um, there's just too much good safety and efficacy data for our professions out there to where um, these things should be held back. Pre prescribing medications for the biggest pandemic in all of our lifetimes, yeah. knock on wood. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the most favorite things I saw the other day was a, um, a nurse, she was in her 60s, she's getting ready to retire. And we have a lot of residents at the general. And one of the residents, it was like their second, well, I wasn't gonna say it's their second intubation, but they hadn't intubated a lot, okay? This was, they definitely were nervous. And this nurse was like, here, look, like this, you know, helped guide the hand, you know, um, help setting up the ventilator and, you know, showed how to do the, the taping, the trouser technique and everything, securing the tube. I mean, these are all great things that we're teaching each other. And I think it's just, it's wonderful, you know? It's, it's a really good thing. And it but goes I, back to, it goes back to like, you know, Jim, if I can bring back to Jim, you know, in his article, he's like, I intubated a guy, no big deal. <laughs> Anesthesiology got mad, but whatever, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, the uh, emergency medicine is a built on experience like that, you know, and I feel like son of a gun, if any profession should gravitate to another profession taking on additional roles to serve the patient better. It should be emergency medicine appreciating that. Um, yeah. and, and, and you I know, my, that gets better. You know, Mike, like I said, you shouldn't be proud that you ran an entire freestanding ED of 30 patients by yourself as an NP or a PA. Like personally, I wouldn't be proud of that. It'd be, it's, it's too much liability. It's dangerous. And why would I ever want to do that alone? I mean, even as a physician, working alone kind of sucks. And working as a nurse alone kind of sucks. I, I, I just, 
I want to stop this negative conversation about scope creep, which I hate that phrase. In fact, I could throw something right now. You know what? I'm going to throw this. I'm going to throw this little like glasses cleaner. I feel better so we can move on. Very good. Okay. okay. All so, right. Segment three. <laughs> Wait, I'm going to throw it again. Hold on. Throw it. Okay. Did it bounce back? There oh my go. gosh. There you go. Okay. Our final segment is an oral, our oral contrast, right? So we dive um, into a longer form, a bigger topic here, share some different studies from our clinical experiences and cover some real world situations you will encounter in your practice setting. Let's talk migraines. Now, I know what you're thinking, listener. You've already talked about migraines on multiple episodes. What we're going to focus on today is treating migraine efficiently and effectively in the constraints that many of us probably find ourselves in today, like maybe last night for me, like maybe in about three hours for me. Um, more patients, less nursing staff, less available beds. I think for a lot of clinicians, treating a patient with a migraine often looks something like this. You're giving one or more cocktails of multiple medications by IV with a big bag of normal saline in a dark room. And that treatment process can last one, maybe two or three hours. They say necessity is the mother of invention. And what I want to look at today is if there is a necessity for us to think of different ways to manage an overflowing ED, is there a way to invent new ways for our practice to treat migraines that are safe and effective for the patient without unnecessarily adding to the overcrowding issue in the ED. So we're going to run this kind of like our uh, Q&A panels at the emergency medicine boot camp. We are just, uh, what, I think, two months away from the next iteration as the date of our recording here. So me and Martha are going to kind of just, you know, talk about different um, reviews and trials and such, and just kind of give our take on both of those. And I, I kind of prepped this uh, this segment. So I'll kind of like, I'll, I'll read something and I'll get Martha's take and I'll give my take after I hear hers. Okay. We'll kind of run it like that. And we'll, we'll, we'll play it by ear a little bit. Okay. New format. We're getting used to this still. Mm -hmm. All right. First article Ketorolac. Okay, so an NSAID is often part of our uh, migraine cocktail if we're giving somebody a cocktail of medications. Should it be? Does it need to be? So this article entitled Effic Efficacy, I can talk, Efficacy of Ketorolac and the Treatment of Acute Migraine Attack. This is a systematic review and meta-analysis from Academic Emergency Medicine in September 2022, just last month. And so the short story on this CIRMA was this. They didn't find any trials that compared Ketorolac in a cocktail versus other like monotherapies, okay? The authors concluded that Ketorolac had similar efficacy in treating migraine as phenothiazines, things like, you know, metoclopramide and stuff like that. So similar benefit to those other drugs. Um, in single trials, they also found that Ketorolac was more effective, more than controlling migraine headaches than sodium valproate, which is Depakote, dexamethasone, and they made an emphasis here, nasal sumatriptan. So Ketorolac, better than those drugs, about the same as our phenothiazines, unclear whether or not in combination is it more effective than just using monotherapies. Martha, your thoughts on Ketorolac, how do you use it? And what do you think about this sperma here? Well, this is going to be a two-part answer because I want our listeners to think about um, first what you just asked, 
And second, am I changing my practice due to overcrowded waiting rooms and or uh, difficulty getting patients placed in an area where they can have an IV um, or even a, an IM shot? Well, let's that. save that. I want to say that, do we change our practice in general for overcrowding? Let's say that to the very end of the thing. Let's just kind of go right, bit by bit for each. I know you wanted to say that to the end, but I want the listener to think about this <laughs> okay. as I'm throughout. answering this. Okay, throughout. Okay? I get it now. Because yeah. you asked me specifically about Toradol. So I'm trying to tell you why I use it and why I don't. Good. I I don't often give I am Toradol for a migraine per se. Now, there are some interesting studies that look at getting shots versus pills and patients having better pain relief. Okay. That is an actual thing that if a patient gets a shot of Toradol in those particular studies, they actually had better pain relief than like say an oral and say tablet. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now with that being said, I, <laughs> I use Toradol if the patient is an appropriate patient for Toradol, meaning most of the time, if they're a frequent migraine person, they know that that works for them. Sure. Um, and I like to get them back to a room and give that, give it to them in their IV. The 15 milligrams is plenty. Right. And, um, that begs the question though, do you get labs on this patient? Do you need to get a creatinine? Um, do you need to see if they're very dehydrated because you had mentioned IV fluids. Okay. That's coming later. Yeah. We're going to yeah. talk about that later on. Yep. I know. So I won't get too deep into that, but to answer your direct question, there is no exact answer for me. It really is patient and day dependent. And that's that. And that's really sad. Um, in the perfect world ivory tower. Yes. I like to give it IV to a patient in combination with other medications, period. Okay. I like that. Um, I personally, if I'm going to pick one, like if I have to, you know, we're playing, you know, it's like, I, I want to name this song in three seconds. I'm going to name this song in two seconds. I'll name it in one. If I have to pick one drug to give somebody for a migraine, it's not going to be Ketorolac. I don't think right. we get relief of any sort of nausea effect, which are common in migraineurs. And so like, I wouldn't use Ketorolac by itself. What I give it, I am with a bunch of other stuff. Um, I don't feel super strongly about that. That wouldn't be my practice necessarily. Okay. All right. The next one here, let's talk diphenhydramine and anticholinergics. So a part of migraine cocktails is often diphenhydramine or Benadryl, and it's given for different reasons. Um, some folks like the sedating effect of diphenhydramine because a lot of headaches are better when you can finally go night night. You know, and so that's sometimes that's nice to do for patients. Um, but also there's concerns about akathisia, that kind of like, uh, you know, movement shaking disorder that folks temporarily get after certain common drugs we give for migraine. So the first systematic review here I want to discuss is this one, adjuvant anticholinergic therapy for the prevention of akathisia. In patients with primary headache in the ED, a systematic review. This is also in an academic emergency medicine in August 2020. These guys have kind of a trend going on. So the, the question they asked was, can we prevent this akathisia and other extrapyramidal side effects with Benadryl, essentially, when you're giving somebody uh, neuroleptics or metoclopramide? So interesting. They found no. Like there was no statistically significant difference in uh, the decrease in akathisia or EPS when giving diphenhydramine versus placebo. 
Um, that being said, they said, hey, there's not a whole ton of data here, but at least in their brief systematic meta-analysis and review, they did not feel like generally diphenhydramine prevented akathisia if the goal was to avoid some of the, the side effects of Benadryl here. Thoughts on that? What's your stance on Benadryl um, and, and how do you or not use it? Okay, so this is highly controversial in my department at the general. We have some mm -hmm. physicians that have been practicing for a very long time and yeah. are extremely experienced. And just the other day, I ordered uh, some Compazine, Toradol, um, some IV fluids, and a gram of Tylenol for a patient. For a, I was uh, working up a migraine, um, treating a migraine. And uh, I was actually presenting the case to one of these older attendings. And he said, well, why didn't you give the Benadryl? You, you forgot to give it. And I said, well, I didn't forget to give it. I'm not giving it. I chose not to give it. Yeah. I chose not to. No, I, I said, no, I didn't. I'm not ordering that. Oh, I can't believe that you wouldn't want to order that. Don't you want to, you know, avoid all these things that we just talked about? And I said, there's no evidence to support that 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 is something I have to do. In fact, it makes my patient really lethargic. And an even better study would be looking at this combination of drugs with Benadryl and their dispo time, mm. you know, versus uh, them with this combo. And they're already sedated with probably a little bit less of time in the hospital because Benadryl is extremely sedating for four to six hours. Now, Compazine is more of a two to four hour sedation term. Mm -hmm. Now, certainly you can push people out like half asleep, <laughs> um, but, uh, another thing, if you really want to do, if you're, if you're truly looking to give the Benadryl to help with the sleeping thing, sure. Okay. Are they being admitted? Do they have a friend driving them home? Right. I mean, that's the only time I would give Benadryl, you know, so then there's other physicians that I practice with and NPs who will say, um, yeah, absolutely not. I'm not giving Benadryl. I mean, it gives patients like this weird little rush when you give it to them IV. Yeah. And then, and then like, is that going to create a new thing for them? Um, just not sure it's necessary. So yeah, you got two theories of thoughts, people that may have been burned by a bad experience, giving an antidopaminergic like Reglan or Compazine. Um, and those that are like, eh, whatever, nothing really bad has happened. So who cares? So um, just to highlight something you mentioned. So is that an issue for you where you'll give some people will get Benadryl with a migraine cocktail and then they're so sedated, you can't discharge them. Mm -hmm. And yes. that's a thing that happens. So yeah, that's exactly, that's a great point. You know, um, I'm kind of on the same track as you. I have really dialed back on use of diphenhydramine in general, not just for migraines, but also for allergic reactions. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we talked about that in the podcast a few episodes ago. I'll put a link in the show notes about Benadryl and, and using that in terms of urticaria and stuff and why you can do other stuff just yeah. as good. But yeah, like I'm kind of sour on Benadryl. The the two times I've had patients, it's a, a, anecdotal for sure, but the times I've had people with akathisia with Reglan, they both got Benadryl and it was, they were both pushed very slowly. So it's like, mm -hmm. it's not hundred percent preventative. And so far when I've skipped the Benadryl with the Reglan um, or metoclopramide, I have not had a marked increase in akathisia in my patients. So like things are going pretty good so far. So, you know, our listeners are always like, okay, well, what do you want me to do then? Again, it might be provider uh, or clinician dependent, right? So if you're working with so-and-so Dr. G, yeah. And they're like, I cannot believe you didn't order the, ben just order the Benadryl. Like you guys don't need to have an argument about it. For Who sure. Cares? Um, unless it's really that big of a deal. Um, and then you have the other 
clinician that you're working with um, might say, yeah, you know what? You really don't need it. Maybe you feel strongly about it, but is there really a reason to argue about Benadryl? It doesn't really do the magical things that we wish that it did, except make people sleep. Really? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, everything we talk about here is definitely going to be patient dependent. And this is the reality of the PA and NP in emergency medicine and urgent care. It also is collaborating physician dependent, you know, and I don't think that I agree. This is not really a hill that needs to be um, perished upon um, for the vast majority of patients here. Listen, you know, Mike, I always say there's only two drugs, in my opinion, that you can give anytime, anywhere for anything that always work. And uh, that's composite and magnesium. Those are my favorite drugs. <laughs> magnesium, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in this case, sure. Why don't you even give a little magnesium? It, it can't hurt. I mean. Oh, gosh. I wish I had found a magnesium article. Yeah. yeah. Maybe well, next, next well, episode. The point is to, like, get people treat them and, and street them, so to speak. You know, so that definitely would not be part of his treat and street strategy here. I know. But I know. we can All go right. over the, the utility of that strategy as a whole in a little bit. Okay. How about another one about the diphenhydramine? So. I've started to give more prochlorperazine, um, uh, which I think is that composine that you mentioned, yes. you know? Right. So like I, I've started to lean on that more as well. So this is interesting. Um, another article, which is actually part of the American Board of Emergency Medicine uh, lifelong learning series of articles a couple of years ago, I think 2019. This is an article called, called Managing Migraine from the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2016. Um, akathisia is usually short-lived after these kinds of drugs. Uh, it seems that they found in their uh, you know, analysis here, when you're giving prochlorperazine, compazine, this giving uh, Benadryl with prochlorperazine may be more effective with that but does not seem to be needed for metoclopramide. Um, Mm -hmm. So we're seeing kind of like some decrease in akesthesia in their experience when you give compazine slash brocoperazine, not a big change when you're giving Reglan. So those of you who are really comfortable with Reglan understand that, hey, maybe you can skip that safely. Of course, links to this article will be in the show notes. So Mike, I just wanted to remind people, and this is kind of a silly thing, but I like to come back to it to review pathophysiology and pharmacology. It's like, why do these drugs, whether they're Reglan, Compazine, um, antidopaminergics, why do they cause this side effect of anesthesia? Well, so think about it. It's in their name, right? Anti-dopaminergic. It's preventing the dopamine from um, uh, being used in their brain. And that that lack of that dopamine is what causes, uh, those, those movements and that side effect. So, um, I think it's important. Sometimes we throw in a little bit of the pharmacology here to understand because we keep kind of throwing a lot of these names around. Um, but a lot of other drugs can do this, right? So some of our antipsychotics can do that. Um, specifically, uh, you know, um, other things that we use in regards for psychiatric treatment in general can cause a lot of these side effects because there's a lot of dopamine blocking receptors in there. So just wanted to throw that out there. That's good. I like that a lot. Um, you know, as we know, it's these, when we fast push these medications, it seems to give more of this akathisia. Uh, but again, in the, in the setting that we're talking about giving a medicine, perhaps I am and discharging 
-hmm. that's going to be a slower rate of absorption for the patient if they get it mm -hmm. IM versus IV. And so even though this study suggests, hey, maybe you want to give Benadryl with this anticholinergic, um, the procopyrazine, perhaps if you're giving IM, maybe not as needed for this, what's going to be a temporary effect anyways. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and all the other bad things you hear about tardive dyskinesia, that tongue flapping, never been reported after an isolated dose of one of these antidopaminergics. So don't worry about a one-timer of these drugs and all of a sudden this person is condemned to the, the tardive dyskinesia. How about this? Talking intramuscular prochlorperazine, we just mentioned that, versus metoclopramide, Reglan, if you're doing single agent therapy, this is great. And write down the pipe in terms of the question we're trying to answer. So this is from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine back in 1996, a little bit older of a uh, study. So this is a randomized trial here, 86 patients. So it's a relatively small sample size. We're talking about they either got an IM shot of sterile saline mm -hmm. or an IM shot of procloperazine, 10 milligrams, or an IM shot of metoclopramide, 10 milligrams. So what they said was this there were a reduction in median headache scores significantly better among our favorite procloperazine, 67%, compared to metoclopramide, only 34%, or placebo, 16%. Also, more significant relief of nausea and vomiting with the procloperazine slash compazine group. However, rescue analgesic therapy was necessary in the majority of patients treated with both procloperazine, 16 out of 28 patients, and metoclopramide, 23 out of 29, so a larger fraction of patients after an hour went by. So the conclusions of this author were, or set of authors, I forget if it's a multi-author or whatever, but they basically said they can't recommend either drug as single agent therapy for acute migraine headaches. So that's, that's kind of an interesting conclusion to be drawn then. They said, although, yeah, procoparazine seems to work better, can't recommend either drug as single agent therapy for acute migraine headache. Martha, your thoughts? So migraines are a multi-variable uh, experience. Uh, that, let me break that down. So why do we get migraines? Okay, there's a lot of different way, reasons why we get migraines. Um, and number two, we're treating a variable, vast amount of symptoms, not just say the headache or mm. the nausea or the photophobia or the irritability or the neck stiffness or um, uh, even abdominal pain. Um, some people get these uh, abdominal pains with their migraines as well. There are so many symptoms related to the migraine. It is a complex process. And what I wanted to kind of throw in the mix here, I know we're going to get to IV uh, fluid replacement in a minute. I had two mm -hmm. really important things, three very important things to say about IV fluids, <laughs> but about 50%, okay, 50% of my patients. Now we are currently working on this study. It is not published. I'm just Ooh. telling you my personal experience, 50% of my patients used alcohol in the last 24 hours before their migraine headache came on. Mm. Now, I only bring that up because one, IV fluids is a great treatment for acute little dehydration um, in the sense that migraines are very, they're brought on not only by the alcohol ingestion, but, but the dehydration that alcohol causes. So when I give a medication, just single, simple compazine, 
it's not going to treat this variable mass of symptoms. Um, It's too complex. There's too many things going on and I need to get it in all corners. I need to get the nausea. I need to get the headache. Mm. I need to get the irritability and I need to get um, the overall, I have to break the cycle. Right. And that is, that's my square. I'm a visual person and I like to get each corner, put it together and, and, and slap it out. Now, right in the middle of that square is my IV fluids, but we'll get to that. That was a real, uh, I got a real Pulp Fiction vibe, you know, it was like that scene with Uma Thorman. She's like, don't be a, yeah. And she does the, the, the little visual thing. Anyways, uh, not great for an audio podcast, what I just did I there, know. but that's okay. It'll just direct you towards our video podcast, Center for Medical Education on YouTube. Speaking of the IV fluid question, right? So that's usually yes. part of our, We're there. <laughs> Martha's like super excited about IV fluids, normal saline. Um, this is um, a big part of most people's migraine cocktails. Throw a bag of normal saline on there. What's the harm? Most of these folks are dehydrated sort of stuff, or at least some of them are. So this is uh, a study out of Annals of Emergency Medicine, February, 2019. Intravenous fluids for the treatment of emergency department patients with migraine headache, a randomized control trial. A small pilot RCT, so kind of like just testing the waters here. 50 patients randomized to get a liter of normal saline over 60 minutes um, versus 10 milliliters per hour over 60 minutes. So like, understandably, 10 milliliters per hour over 60 minutes is just 10 milliliters. It's not a whole lot here. Versus a liter of normal saline over 60 minutes here. So a big difference in terms of volume administered. Um, Hopefully they blinded that somehow by hiding the bag, but I'm not quite sure just for discussion today. Um, So that's our randomization plus usual treatment for all with IV prochlorperazine again, and diphenhydramine. Pain on a zero out of 10 scale at an hour dropped 4.5 points in the fluids group, the one liter group, and 4.9 in the no fluid group, which was not statistically significant out of a zero to 10 pain scale. Um, The authors acknowledge this is a small study meant to be exploratory, they said also, though, they were very choosy in patient selection. They really wanted to pick migraine patients and not just headache patients. And so they really were clear to pick migraine patients um, that met the, the international classifications. Okay. So their conclusion here, IV fluids did not help relieve pain from migraine. However, patients with migraine also have nausea and vomiting. So it could probably help in other ways, but as a pain reliever specifically, it appears ineffective. Martha. Fine. Fine. I'm not saying that IV fluids fix pain. No, no, I don't think you are. Yeah. But I want to hear your take on the rest of your take on IV fluids. Well, so I will channel, you know, my inner Rick Bucata and Jim Roberts and um, others. uh, The fact that when, you know, you got that, you're that patient and they've got that IV in their arm. Oh yeah. You know, Janie's got all, you know, she's getting her fluid. She's getting her medications, you know, she's being taken care of. She's in a dark room. I mean, these types of things in this, uh, these placebo things that we had, these, these are good things that we do yeah. for patients. There are very few poor or negative side effects from giving someone a bag of normal saline. Um, now on the billing perspective, if you're one of those people, yeah, I mean, you can bill up to a hundred bucks for an IV with a single bag of normal saline or plasma light or something like that. But let me just draw your attention back to a 1999 study Ooh. in, in the annals of emergency medicine. Okay. This 
specific study of 140 patients who got a single bag of intravenous saline solution who also got, oh my gosh, what medication? Prochloromethazine. <laughs> sorry, um, prochlor. Uh, Compazine. Compazine. There you go. Compazine. They, um, out of these patients, not a single patient that got the single dose of that medication and the IV fluids had any acute ecstasia. Not a single one. And none none of them got Benadryl. So wait, did they put, did they put the procloprazine in the bag and infuse it that way? Is that how they did it? Or- Uh you know, push. that's, uh, no, they gave it as its single slow dose push, 10 milligram push. dose. Um, and then they gave them their fluids and not a single one of those people developed any extra, uh, you know, EPS symptoms, um, acesthesia, ac- uh, and I'm not going to say that the IV fluids, you know, saved their life or anything, but like, why not? All right. Why not? I- I get it. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm more of a stance that like, we, we get plenty of patients who come into my emergency department who have had a headache for a brief period of time or have had a headache with nausea, but not a lot of fluid losses. Um, and they haven't necessarily tried much of anything for their headaches. And so, you know, I think IV fluids, you know, like it says here, may be helpful for certain patients in other ways, but um, I think, I am kind of getting away from um, kind of like blanket IV fluids for all migraine patients. Um, that's just kind of my take on it. If if they don't have a reason to be volume down and they can tolerate PO, I always say you hydrate best PO and not IV, mm-hmm. you know? And so you should go home and you should pound water, pick your favorite Gatorade flavor, go ahead and drink that at home. Do we have to give it IV if you're not vomiting? Um, I think it's a good question to be asked there. Next, we haven't talked about um, triptans yet. So this is a trial uh, from the journal Neurology, February 2005, a trial of metoclopramide, Reglan, versus sumatriptan, brand name Imitrex, for the emergency department. uh, Oh, what happened? It's gone. There it is. Um, ED treatment of migraines. So 202 patients were screened, uh, 78 patients eventually went into the study. Um, the two sc- groups had comparable pain scores. At two hours after giving metoclopramide, change in pain was 7.2 um, compared to 6.3. When compared to 24 hours, the metoclopramide group had improved by 6.1 compared with a baseline, and the trim 10 group had improved by 5.0, so a little less, okay? Um, at two hours, pain-free rates were 59% in the metoclopramide arm and 35% in the sumatriptan arm. So that's interesting. Um, let's see here. So the conclusions... When compared at two and 24 hours, aggressive. So this is this is the definition of aggressive here. 20 milligrams dosed up to four times over the course of 24 hours. This is kind of a, a study that's interesting. Even though it says like emergency department treatment, I'm not keeping you in my ED for 24 hours for four doses of, of Reglan here. But that's what the, the story is in this, this trial here. 20 milligrams of Reglan, which is probably higher doses than we're used to seeing, dose up to four times Reglan versus a one-timer of six milligram subcutaneous sumatriptan 
their contention is it relieved migraine headache comparably at 24 hours comparable difference in headache relief one humble dose of sumatriptan sub q versus four doses of 20 milligrams of metoclopramide. Some secondary endpoints suggest that metoclopramide may be preferable for migrants coming to the ED. So thoughts about sumatriptan and when do you use that versus procloperazine, Martha? Well, I'm not, okay. I'm not a huge triptan fan. However, the migraine literature is, and I've had a couple of bad experiences with some triptans with myself and with my patients and then patients telling me things that they don't like about them. However, there are only three drugs proven in the literature to treat migraines. I say it time and time again, the medications used to treat migraines are anti-dopaminergics, NSAIDs and triptans, right? So um, there, there's good evidence that triptans can treat migraines in the right population of patients. Some patients they of course do not work for. Um, there is a time frame in which you can get them on. But as I remember, um, you know, again, Jib talks talked about migraines a heck of a lot. And he said, you know, forget about the window. You know, it's been six hours. Okay, well, you know, you can give a little triptan still. Um, see if that helps. It's proven to help. Um for a patient that normally takes it, yeah, sure, it's not going to hurt them. But for the patients that have either had those bad flushing side effects, tachycardia, um, rebound headaches um, from the triptans, yeah, well, then maybe that's not someone I would use it in. So again, very patient-specific, ask about the history. If a patient's never had it and you want to give it, the ER is a good place to try it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, fair. Um, you know, there are, of course, contraindications to tripped hands, cardiovascular disease, um, certain other medications, like I believe tricyclic uh, antidepressants or yeah. certain ones. So if you're not clearly familiar with contraindications to tripped hands, be familiar before you try this for the first time. Um, but uh, there was something I read back in the day because I had the same thought, Martha, back in the day. I was like, hey, I I've been told you give Imitrex some a tripped hand right away. Mm -hmm. after the headache and you have decreasing efficacy as the headache goes on. I wish I knew off the top of my head where it was, but I swear somewhere I read sub Q dosing has good effect regardless of the time course. PO yeah. triptans uh, are more effective early on, but sub Q can be given anywhere in the course still with good effect. So, so kind of like what Jim said, like, you know, I don't, concern myself too much with time course, where they are in their headache when giving some a check in, especially if it's worked well before. And of course, if there's no contraindications. Right. And you well, know, there, there are a lot of different forms. I think the listener needs to know there are a lot of different forms of triptans, mm -hmm. um, oral sub Q and even powders um, in these intranasal de devices. And um, the powders can, can be used a couple of times. Um, you know, nothing like snorting some uh, triptans to get rid of your migraine, right? <laughs> well, um, that is kind of our wrap on migraine treatment uh, in the setting we find ourselves in currently. There's many other references we can go into. We're going to put um, two other LS LLSA articles from the past five years from ABEM in our show notes. There's even a JAMA Systematic Review and Analysis for Acute Migraine Treatments from 2021. We'll put in the show notes. In the end, Martha, the question remains, what are your thoughts about some sort of a, a one-timer dosing um, in a migraine? Let's, let's put it more specifically. Someone who 
has not failed their typical migraine treatments at home already and who is relatively comfortable appearing but does have you know the classic migraine symptoms how do you feel about giving a one-timer treatment of of a medicine of some sort to these patients and what is your preference there um as far as uh just picking one single drug treatment that's all i get to choose is one i guess this i guess without picking a drug i'll rewind a little bit what do you think about the practice of just giving a one-timer I am or sub dose of something and then discharging that patient. No, no, because my headache patients are a lot more complicated than that. Whether I'm not a hundred percent certain that this is not a subarachnoid or a bleed or some other thing. Like, yeah, I'm not just saying like, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, assuming you've ruled that out, right? Like, let's say like, no, but have I though? I want to observe that patient for a little bit. Every patient is so different here. Maybe mm -hmm. they're going to end up getting an LP. Maybe they developed a fever. Maybe they took a gram of Tylenol before they got here for their headache, made their temperature 99.7. And now they have 102 fever. And I'm like, oh, well, they have a headache and a fever now. I've been able to watch them a little bit. Uh, yeah, no, there's no answer to this question, Mike. I need a specific patient, a specific <laughs> time and date, and, yeah. then, and then a couple of hours. That's fair. Um, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, although I kind of am, but I'm not really. Not, right, not fine. In a, you answer the not, question. In a, not in a malicious way, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. <laughs> my answer and my practice has been this. It, if this is a patient who sounds like they're having a migraine headache and there is no suggestion of a more emergent headache going on here, um, yeah, I've started giving a dose of sub-Q or an IM dose of prochlorperazine and then discharging. And we had this kind of conversation before we started recording, but like, you know, ERs everywhere are facing weights of one hour three hours, six hours, 12 hours before you get into a room. So even though there's a discussion of, hey, you shouldn't be using these drugs as monotherapy, what is better? Is it better that there's a, a chance, a decent chance of relief immediately upon the patient arriving at the ED? If I can triage them, give them a shot and out the door. And I roll the dice on a good chance of relief on those patients and tell them, hey, you can also take NSAIDs at home and you can also orally hydrate at home and you can also, uh, you know, take, you know, Benadryl at home if you want to go night-night, okay? Maybe How come, Mike, Mike, when, when you well, say Well, I'm almost done, almost done, almost done. If, if I can do that versus having the patient wait potentially three to six hours in the waiting room before they even get therapy and perhaps they leave during that time period, Maybe a good enough treatment at one hour or 30 minutes after door time is preferential to waiting three to six hours for more aggressive treatment. More of a right now approach versus a perfect approach later on. There's a quote, I think it's Patton's quote. You know, it's kind of a, uh, you know, um, a, a good plan right now is better than a perfect plan that's too late. I'm, mm. I'm really ruining that quote, but it's kind of the general idea. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so a lot of things that you've said here, yep. um, do I want a patient to suffer more while they're waiting for a bed? If I could give them something, some people say, um, yeah, no, we don't give medications in the waiting room and we don't treat patients until they're of an assigned nurse, especially in California. It's dangerous and there's liability. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. Um, so yes, then in which case we will let that patient suffer. I mean, in my opinion, that's what we're doing. We're letting them suffer. Yeah. Now, if I'm pretty certain 
that me interviewing them in my little room in triage versus interviewing them in a little room in the back. I don't care. It's still a little room. I've evaluated them. Um, I would consider giving them oral uh, compazine, Motrin, and Tylenol together. I don't feel the need for a shot because it's kind of a lot harder for the nurse to get whatever, forever, whatever the reason is. They say, mm. oh, it's harder for me to get that. You know, this patient's in the waiting room. Can I just give them some tablets? In which case I do give them that. And then if you're a good clinician and you have a provider that's in triage rounding on these patients every two, three hours, I can go back to that patient and maybe before they leave, or if they say, listen, I really want to leave. I feel so much better. Mm. Then at least I can lay eyes on them again and say, you know what? This is what that problem was. The problem here, Mike, that exists is that one, people change their plan of care or practice because of these wait times and short staffing. Um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? In some cases it is, and in some cases it's not. Um, but the other thing is where we provide care for patients doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's in, I mean, these are the patients that aren't dying or coding. Sure. Um, it doesn't matter whether I interview them in a triage box, in a room, in the hallway, yes, um, privacy, um, a vaginal exam, yeah, all those <laughs> things matter. But the conversation that I have with the patient and getting their history and such, there's no reason why I can't start a workup in the triage area. But with that being said, there has to remain a clinician, not only to monitor those patients, but to give sign out to the other clinician coming on saying, hey, I give this, this person a migraine cocktail two hours ago. Can you check in with them to make sure that they don't leave so we can see if they're feeling better? This gets tricky, complicated, messy, dangerous at times, not the way that you run want to run your shop in a perfect world. Everyone would be in the room, in the back with their her own nurse with a, with a set, you know, perfect, I want to say literally perfect way to, to treat them, but it's not like that. So adapting your practice as an emergency clinician is an art. You need to be experienced. Do not put your NP or your PA that has one year experience out in triage, right. put your well, put your well seasoned doctor that after the first two sentences of that patient's complaint, they've already tuned out. Cause they're like, you know what? That person's got to go to the back. They said chest pain, dizziness. They had a syncopal event. Like this patient isn't being discharged from triage. There's no oral or I am medication. I'm going to give this patient that's going to make them feel better. And then I'm not going to change my practice today. Oh, like, let's just get that EKG real quick and make sure that syncope isn't from atrial fibrillation they're experiencing right now. Um, you know, I'm going into a different topic here about our, our triage clinicians, but the question that you raised was changing your practice based on all these little variables. I think it's okay to change your practice slightly to adapt to our situation, but you have to know what you don't know. You have to identify with the fact that you could be wrong about this. And you have to admit to yourself that that is a dangerous practice. Um, and are you really giving the best care? So complicated, difficult, experienced clinicians have issues with it too, but it is a juggling act. And I don't know if there's an exact right answer, but it's happening. We're doing it, whether there's an answer or not. I like your thoughts on this a lot. And I, I agree that there's a lot of ifs, thens, and buts that have to be considered. And uh, yeah, this is a complicated topic. That's why I think it makes a great discussion for our podcast. 
Yeah. Well, you know, Mike, I just wanted to also add that there, there are NPs that I work with that they sit in the box out front and they're like, I'm not ordering anything. None of these patients mm. have nurses. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not ordering a head CT. I'm not going to read that. I'm just, well, then what's your job? Um, and then I have other people that are so burnt out. Patients start talking and they, their eyes glaze over and I look at them and they say mean things to patients, right? Mm. Like this is not the place for them. Um, there are other people that work very well, you know, um, as a nurse practitioner, uh, I would do like a pregnancy test or I would, you know, maybe even put in an IV line knowing if that patient was right to go back because what am I, Mike, I am the health bridging of the gaps that day. And that makes me feel good. Um, but there are NPs that say, oh no, I didn't become an NP so that I could do urine beta pregnancy tests and triage. You know, that's just like an asinine bunch of shit. I'm sorry. Like your job is to help the ship go. And what is that quote? Like, um, oh my goodness. Uh, about being the captain on the ship. Um, the quote goes like this. Uh, a wise man once said, be careful who you let on your ship because some people will sink the whole ship just because they can't be the captain. Right. <laughs> so you have to get a good team of people. You got to be flexible in emergency medicine. You have to know your limitations. Okay. And you also need to know that it's not a perfect care environment. Tweaking your clinical abilities is a, a seasoned savory and a little bit of sweet that you need to change and, and, and adapt and, and look at every time you're on a new shift and, and don't be a dick. Okay. Really don't be a jerk. I'm getting really, we tired should have that. a whole discussion on provider and triage. That'd be a good topic no, for a podcast later on. Well, I got a lot to say. I got a lot to say. Yep. For sure. Okay. Well, great discussion, Martha. Wait, We're it's gonna... over. We're going to stop yeah. talking about it. Yeah. I mean, we got to stop eventually. Right. We're coming up on an hour now. Okay. Well, listen, um, we're going to go into our something sweet. This has kind of eluded us on recent podcasts. We wanted to come back to it. I know Martha has um, a lot that you could talk about right now as far as something sweet. But the idea is it's something, a little dessert. We don't want to gorge ourselves on dessert. We just want a little dessert and to see, because we got a lot of something sweets coming up here. So we don't want to like blow your something sweet wad in this one podcast. Let's see what you got. Okay. I'm just going to go with two, my two and two. We, uh, we, did, we did our book club before, bringing back book club. This month at ASAP, I picked up a copy of Avoiding Common Errors in Pediatric Emergency Medicine. Oh, pediatric. This okay, because I have okay. the other one that's adult. Okay, yep. very good. Also great. I, believe, I don't know if that's Amal um, and Stuart. It is. It is. Yeah. I'm looking for it. My book, my... Yep, yeah, I got it right here. Hold on a second. Yeah, orange and white. It's a good book. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I see it. I oh, see well, it. It's up there. I Anyways. see it. I saw yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You saw um, it. And I think this is a really great book because it sort of breaks down each little interesting topic. I think they have, let's see, a total of like 200 something in here. You know, and I was kind of flipping through it and I noticed something on dry socket and I was like, Ooh, I haven't seen a dry socket patient in a while. Mm. And I was like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, some people throw antibiotics at these things. People do that. I didn't think that was right, but, um, this is telling you don't do that. And then also it's pretty rare for kids. Um, and usually they have like a big chunk of food stuck in there. So like really good irrigation and repacking is the treatment, mm. of that. you know, simple stuff. And then there's another quick, um, Summary on do not apply the adult fast criteria to pediatric trauma patients. Yes, these pediatric kids, they're they're different than adults. Right. You know, flipping through it, more topics. Um, here's one specifically on uh, 
This one is fever and two months old and beyond. Now these criteria change frequently, but it gives you just these reminders about what to look for and what not to miss. So really nice. great book. It's, it's small. Um, I would say like one a night, one a night and um, really easy, approachable stuff. The other book that I've been doing a lot of reading on recently is this one on, oh, by the way, um, Avoiding Common Errors in Pediatric Emergency Medicine is a Walters Clore publication um, and you can get an ebook too. So you can read it on your Kindle. Who's the first author on that, by the way? Uh, Woolridge. Okay, thank you. Dale, Dale Woolridge. So this is Neuropsychiatry. Absolutely fascinating book. Uh, Yadovsky and Hales. By, uh, this is the American Psychiatric Publishing um, Company. And it talks, they highlight traumatic brain injury, um, delirium, dementia, the actual neuropsychological evaluation. And mm. As emergency department clinicians, like we have to be good at this quick assessment. Now, I am by no means calling myself a psychiatrist or a neuropsychiatrist of any kind, but you have to be familiar with these concepts and topics so that when you discuss them with your um, consultation or clinician, or at least get an idea of what that patient's issue is, like it's not Greek to you, unless of course, you know, Greek. Right. Lastly, first question is the patient Greek. Then <laughs> if so, then it's okay. Otherwise, uh, yeah. Um, lastly, when I was at ASAP, I renewed my subscription to 12 journals. Um, 13 would have been excessive. Right. I think I like to read. I'm a nerd. I like evidence-based stuff. Um, people hate paper. Uh, there are a lot of things that I, I talk about for our courses in regards to medical apps, which I use. But when I have a journal sitting on my coffee table, I am more likely to read this than my phone. So I wanted to just remind you that your clinical group or maybe your boss or whomever might give you a couple hundred bucks to renew a journal. And then you don't have to get the paper copy. You can get it electronically or both. So um, I renewed my trauma and acute care surgery. I renewed my, believe it or not, yeah, it's so exciting, annals, annals. in medicine. And then, you know, I got this one this year. I got to tell you, Mike, I bought the book for the cover. I did. Pain. Check it out. Um, it just, it's- What spoke, is that? Is that a brain? It's a brain. It just okay. spoke, it spoke to me. Just this big red word of pain. Intense. Yeah. And then the size of the journal. This is, this is a lot. There are a lot of articles in here. Um, there's some really interesting studies like, fascinating. So I did pain and then um, some pediatric critical care medicine course, always pediatric emergency. Hey, Jappa. I like that one. Mm -hmm. And your favorite Jappa. Uh, it's up there. Because I don't want to be a hater. <laughs> no hating is appreciated. Right. So that's my something sweet. You can either pick some of the ones I recommended, get your own, um, or find a recommended book that you like that maybe we don't know about my something sweet is a book called wild ride and it is by Haley Arsenault PA and uh, I don't know if she has a dash C or not she probably does but so uh Ms. Arsenault is the first PA astronaut and she actually is a uh, first person in space with a prosthetic um so quick story on her Haley Arsenault um overcame childhood leukemia um, had to get a uh, prosthetic, I believe it's a femur, 
And then she went on to become a PA and I believe works for works in um, oncology and went up with, I think it was one of the, the um, civilian space efforts recently. And so she Hmm. was on kind of the first crew there. Um, So wild ride, a memoir of IV drips and rocket ships. Love the rhyming there. And I pre-ordered it. So I got to get it signed. And so it says, uh, to Mike Sharma, PIC, from one PA to another, from Miss Arsenault. So thank you, Miss Arsenault. Congrats to you. You are a boss. And I look forward to reading this. That is awesome. This person sounds incredibly interesting. And gosh, that's, that's inspiring. It, You know, Mike, we were talking about how I have little to zero motivation right now, given um, the last year. And it's it's hard going from like really excited about things to barely being able to get out of bed some days it's been rough um but stuff like that uh, that's really inspiring i'm getting that book i'm very very ex- excited yeah i you know what i i feel you on the motivation and what gets me going is working with this is going to sound sappy folks like you martha <laughs> and other people seriously I, I talk to other pas who are all going through it and um, it's just really and NPs and physicians and just people in general are going through it. And um, just hearing other stories about people are keeping a stiff upper lip, as the Brits say, and, and, and pushing forward um, makes me want to push forward a little more, too. You know, I actually really wanted to end um, this by, by thanking you, too, again, for being um, super, super supportive and helpful. And this is a lot of fun. We definitely you know, I love that there's just some people that help pick up the slack when needed. And then like, you don't mind covering for them when they have their problems or they, you know, need time. And, you know, I did carry you Mike for about three years. So yeah, I mean, it's about time noted, acknowledged. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad (laughs) I can give back. I'm just kidding. But I do want to end with a limerick because you had, uh, I, I don't think what that astronaut said was necessarily a limerick, but I encourage any and all listeners to share medical limericks with us because they're really fun and they always make me laugh. And I start off sometimes when I go into work, if I've heard a good one and I sit down, like I'm going to have a, a serious conversation with someone, they're like, oh, hey, Martha, how's it going? And I'll go, um, there once was a vascular surgeon from Kent had a patient who needed a stent and they're already like, wait, what? (laughs) But the man only dined on sausage and wine. So his remains are now in cement. Mm. I'm glad we didn't go about a man from Nantucket. Um, (laughs) Here is our two view trivia answer and question. Last month's question is this. Key West is known for being the home of a famous American author in the 1930s who owned special animals, and the descendants of those animals still live on the property to this day. Who is the author, and what is special about these animals? Well, we had a lot of responses, and I have met these special animals. I have several pictures of them, too. But the first one was from Mike. It's Luis Guzman. He's a lot of, um, he, he's like a lot of you listening, a new NP. He's interested in coming to the emergency medicine boot camp, And he wrote in with the right answer. Ernest Hemingway owned a home in Key West and the descendants of his are six-toed cats. Um, Snow White, they still roam the property. Many of them have names. Um, 
They're all named after famous people, as far as I understand. Famous, yes. either fictional or, mm-hmm. or real people. Yeah. M- Marilyn Monroe was one. She's buried there. I mean, there are a lot of them, and they're, some of them are sweet. Some of them are not. Some of them are mm-hmm. real, real pieces of, you know. Real catty. I'm not a cat person, but um, I have some beautiful pictures of the house, Hemingway's house. It's a cool tour, and I suggest you go while you're at the CCME course from November 28th to December 2nd in Key West, Florida at the Casa Marina. That was a smooth segue. <laughs> okay. Should I read the next trivia question? Oh, yeah. Could you do that, please? Yeah, I will. I will. So um, here's our two-part trivia question. Email your answer and feedback and, you know, whatever else to twoviewcast at gmail.com. That is the number twoviewcast at gmail.com. And the two-part question is this. What is the nickname of the U.S. state of California and why? So email us those answers to twoviewcast at gmail.com. Martha, you had mentioned about the course at Key West coming up November 28th to December 2nd, reviewing kind of the latest in emergency medicine and urgent care literature. So that's pretty awesome. Do you want to talk about the final um, December boot camp coming up here? When's that coming? Yes, the boot camp is in December. 13th through the 16th in Las Vegas for the main course. And of course we have our pre-workshop pharmacology, ultrasound and procedures courses on the 11th and the 12th. You should treat yourself and treat your patients to a nice Christmas gift in Las Vegas. There you go. Well, more information on the original and advanced emergency medicine boot camps, the emergency medicine and acute care course next in Key West. And by the way, 2023 dates have been announced, so start uh, planning now for next year, or any of our courses are available at the Center for Medical Education website. That is www.ccme.org. That is www.ccme.org. Thanks for listening to this newly formatted episode of The Two View. You could subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Search for Two View Emergency. That's the number Two View Emergency. It'll come right up. Ratings help us climb the charts so that other clinicians get some Two View goodness like you did just now. If you like YouTube and want to see the video blog instead, including that graph of how there is a gap in care for patients with COVID-19, search for Center for Medical Education. You can catch the video version of the podcast. Don't forget our website where you can go next level any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers and sites we have referred to. There were a lot today. That's twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple. By the way, congratulations, Meg Dipple, for becoming a mom of baby number two. Super Congrats, cute. Meg. Yeah. All right. Thank you again for tuning in, friends and EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us today on The Two of You. Have a good day and a great shift. 